0: Wow. Uh, That's fun, huh? Anybody ever met some people like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we all have. We've met some people that uh, seem to have the ability to say things that just set us off, right? You know? Uh, maybe it's a coworker. maybe it's a person sitting right next to you, I don't know who it could be here this morning, but the reality is that every single one of us have people in our lives, I see some husbands and wives interacting right now, that's fun, uh, you know. Uh, all of us have people in our lives that just seem to uh, be able to get under our skin, right? Well, you're in luck, because uh, right now we're in the middle of a series called "Unoffendable," And, you'd, you know, if you're anything like me, you'd go, um, I don't know if I can be unoffendable." <laughs> you you want to hear something fun? Um, they, they asked me to write a series on relationships, and I wrote this series out of my own struggle. I wrote this series out of my own struggle. My own struggle with getting hurt. How sometimes the things that people say or the way that they treat me or or don't treat me can really make me upset. Can we just be honest for a minute? Anybody else identify with that? And over the last three weeks, we've been talking about some choices that we can make. Some choices that actually. Help us deal with the offenses that come into our lives and respond, with, respond to them more like Jesus. That song that we just sang, you know, building our lives upon Christ and, and living out of his love, that's what we're talking about. Because the reality is you will be offended. Somebody will... Have an offense that comes towards you, but how you respond is really a choice. In fact, that's, the, that's been the whole idea of this series, that offense is an event. It will occur. You will get hurt. Offense is an event, but offended is a choice. And so here are some of the choices that we've talked about. Over the last three weeks, here's the choices that we've talked about. Number one, the first choice was to choose to build a bridge and and tear down the walls through forgiveness. Number two was to choose to go on a rescue mission, not a hunting expedition. Number three, to choose to say no to your ego and yes to your humility. That was last week. That was a lot of fun to talk about how often we think about ourselves, right? Well, this week, to introduce what we're going to talk about, I have a question for you, okay? Here, here's the question to get us started. What does it take to change a heart? Can you think about that with me for a minute? Let's say you've got a, a coworker who just perpetually treats you terribly. For whatever reason, you know, you probably wouldn't say this, and if they're here, don't repeat it, but, you know, like, they're a jerk, okay? Okay? Or you've got a neighbor who seems to like to mow their yard, and they bag it, and then they dump the grass over the fence. You'd think that I'd be joking, but I I knew people in Kansas City where we lived who literally did that, you know. And for whatever reason, you're having a hard time with them. And all you can think about is how you can prove that they're wrong and you're right. But in the end, that won't change them, will it? You ever prove to somebody that you were right? Did it change them? No. What is it that changes a human heart? What changes the heart of a spouse, the heart of a child, the heart of, uh, of me when I've been offended? What is it that changes my heart? I came across a story from a, a radio show, uh, talk show host. His name is Brant Hansen, and he said this. It's a little bit of a story, so I'm going to settle in and just read it to you, okay? He said, a guy once asked me to go with him to Indonesia to help people after the latest tsunami hit, and I said yes. I had no idea what I was doing. We arrived in Banda Ashek two weeks after the destruction Indonesia alone lost a mind-bending 200,000 lives. We weren't welcomed by everyone. Most people love the help, sure, but I felt unwelcomed when a group of Muslim separatists threatened to kill us. Yeah, that'll make you feel unwelcomed. They were opposed to Western interference, and they didn't want us saying anything about Jesus. I just wanted to help some people. I also wanted a hotel, preach, preach. And some air conditioning, right? I wanted a safer place. I didn't want to die. We took supplies to what was before the tsunami, a fishing village. It was now a group of people living on the ground, some in tents. We distributed food, housewares, cooking oil, that sort of thing, and we stayed on the ground with them. That's how our little disaster response group operated, even though I wanted a hotel. We stayed among the victims and we lived with them. After the militant group threatened to slit our throats, I felt kind of vulnerable out there laying on the ground. You think? As a dad with two little kids, I didn't sign up for the martyr thing. I took the threat seriously and wanted to leave. The local imam resisted our presence too, and that bugged me. Well, if you hate us, maybe we should leave. It's 1,000 degrees and we've got no AC or running water or electricity and your co-religionists are threatening us. So, yeah, maybe let's call it off. But it wasn't up to me. And I also didn't have a flight back. As we helped distribute supplies to nearby villages, people repeatedly asked the same question, Why are you here? They simply couldn't understand why we would be there with them they thought that we were enemies. They kept saying, but you are our enemy. And we kept saying, well, Jesus told us to love our enemies. The imam eventually warmed up to us. And before we left, he invited our little group to his home for dinner. What I cut out of this part is that part of what they were doing was going through the affected area and collecting bodies, and helping to pick them up and go and bury them. You want to talk about hard things to do. He invited us, our little group, to his home for dinner. We sat in his home, one of the few in the area that was still standing. He explained through an interpreter that he didn't trust us at first because we were Christians, but while other aid groups would drive by, throw a box out of a car, and get their pictures taken with people of the people of his village, our group was different. We slept on the ground. He knew we'd been threatened. He knew we were uncomfortable, and he knew we didn't have to be there. But there we were, his supposed enemies, and we would not be offended. He passed around a trophy with the photo of a 12-year-old boy, one of his children. He told us the boy had been lost in the tsunami, and could we please continue to search for him? Was there anything that we could do? We were all crying. We looked at the trophy given to the boy for his excellent Quran memorization skills. Then the imam said something that shocked us all, and it still boggles my mind. He asked us if we would take his remaining kids. They were sitting in the room there with us. And if we would raise them as our own in America. He offered us his children. Did we just hear that right? We did hear it right, and we didn't know how to react. We were heartbroken by the desperation, we knew the legalities that made the idea instantly impossible. And I don't remember how the conversation ended, but eventually we had to leave, and it hurt us to leave. Afterwards, we were all talking about a lot of things, including how dangerous it was for him to even make that offer to us, to ask us to take his children. But the most puzzling thing was this. How is it even possible that someone could go from, you are my sworn enemy, you're not welcome here, I want to kill you, to, will you please Take my children and raise them. How is that possible? How does a heart change like that? The only thing that I can think of is that he saw love. He knew we loved his people. I don't know what else does that. And I have to agree with him. I don't know what changes a human heart. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not proving that I'm right and you're wrong. None of that changes a human heart. The one and only thing that can break down the hardness of a human heart is love embodied. And I wonder what would happen I wonder what would happen if you and I would become people who would make a choice in the midst of someone offending us and someone hurting us or someone slandering us or someone sinning against us or someone you know doing something at work and they, they blame it on you. I wonder what would happen if we would become a people who would choose radical love over self-preservation. Because the fact of the matter is when I get hurt really often, All I can think about is, how can I protect myself? How about you? All I can think about is making sure that they knew that they hurt me and they wronged me. And yet the gospel is God's response to my offense and rather than Him, coming on this mission to just declare how wrong I am. He came with radical, self-sacrificing love and loved me. Now, the Bible is filled with some incredible stories that bring key concepts into living color. It it shows us these big ideas and distills them down into human life, into the things that we all face. And there's a a story that I think encapsulates this idea of of radical love over self-preservation better than any other story I've seen, honestly, in in all of Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament. The Bible can be divided kind of into two parts. There's the the Old Testament, the first part, which is about two-thirds of it, and then the New Testament, uh, the the, the second half or, or third, I guess you could say. And in the Old Testament, there's a book called Hosea, a story of incredible love. It's a story about a man who was a a prophet or a man who God spoke to and then God asked him to speak on behalf of him and to speak to the nation of Israel. And in this particular story, God decided to take his message and bring it into living color. His message was about the nation of Israel and how they were forsaking him and sinning against him and offending him and, and, and doing all sorts of wrong. And so, God decided to take this man, Hosea, and tell him to do something really, really drastic, to do something really dramatic. He decided to tell him to go marry a woman that he knew would be incredibly unfaithful. You want to talk about getting offended. The story of Hosea is incredible. In this story, we find what it looks like to demonstrate love, to choose radical, self-sacrificing love over self-preservation. Let me me walk you through through the story. It starts in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at what it says says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this tells us the span of the time that God was speaking through this man, Hosea, okay? It gives us the kind of the time frame that we're looking at. And during the, the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, verse 2, he goes on, he says this, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. That The word promiscuous woman means that she was literally known to be a a prostitute, a woman who who took care of herself and and, and paid the bills, so to speak, in this way, And, and this would have been an incredibly shameful thing for Hosea to do, and yet God is telling him to do it. Why? Here's why: For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. <laughs> Woo. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying Israel, just like. And by the way, you're going to find out her name in a minute. Her name was Gomer. It's quite the name. Just you know, you could find other names that would. Probably be better than Gomer or Jezebel in the Old Testament. Those ones are not associated with good things. But this woman was in living color, demonstrating, frankly, what we've done towards God our offenses. And God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Hosea and Gomer. It goes on in verse 3, and look at what the text says. The text tells us, So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now this would seem like this is an exciting time, but then they go to name the son, and God wants to have say about the name of the son. So verse 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel. By the way, this is not a good name, okay? Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. If if you're familiar with the the New Testament, and if you're not, it's okay. There's there's this story in the the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of of the New Testament, of the Bible. And there's a great battle that takes place in the future. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. You've maybe seen the movie, you know, don't want to close my eyes. You know, that, yeah, okay, maybe you've seen that movie, sorry. I'll stay off the worship team. Here's the point, okay? Um, Where Armageddon takes place, it's called the Valley of Megiddo. It has another name, the Valley of Jezreel. It's where there is a great judgment poured out because of the forsaking of God and God says to Hosea hey you've got a son, congratulations name him, I will punish you wow not only that, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel wait a minute, I thought we were talking about love (laughs) we'll get there we'll get there Verse 5 goes on, says, in that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. He's pronouncing judgment over the nation. Verse 6 tells us, not only did Gomer have one child, but then she had another child. Gomer conceived again, and she gave birth to a daughter. It's awesome. And then the Lord wants to name her again, and how do you think this is going to go? Well, based on... You know, previous history, not so good, but it seems better. Call her lo Ruhama. That's a beautiful name, you know? <laughs> Call her lo Ruhama. What does that mean? It means you are not loved. Look at this, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Wait a minute. Here's, here's what we're getting at. The way God's responding, honestly, is the way we often feel when we get offended, right? Now, here's the, here's the amazing thing. God is righteous and just. I'm not so righteous and just. And God is looking down and seeing all of this, and He's saying, man, this is terrible. This needs to change. He's pronouncing judgment over them, but I want you to see this is not where God ends, okay? He goes on in verse 8. After she weaned lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. And then the Lord said this. And at this time, Hosea's got to be just dying. Like, what are we going to name this child? Well, name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. I wonder when I look at this text if... if There's a subtle nod to maybe who Gomer is and how she was living that maybe this child is actually not Hosea's child. God is saying that his chosen people who are supposed to be, you know, belong to him are acting as if they're not his people. And now I'm not even going to acknowledge you. But does he stay there? No, he does not. Look at verse 10. Look at what he says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. This is a a reference to God's promise to Abraham that eventually they as a people would number like the sands of the seashore. In other words, God changes his mind and he says, I'm not going to persist in this. I will continue to keep my promise They will be like the people, or like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. What is God doing, and what is he saying? In living color, he's fleshing out what it looks like to deal with offenses. We all feel the things that God has said. We all feel like judgment should come on occasion, and yet God continues. He perseveres. Here's what love requires. Okay, I'm going to share with you three things out of the life of Hosea uh, that love requires. Number one, when people act like our enemies, love requires perseverance. When your boss acts like your enemy, love requires perseverance. When your children act like your enemy, love requires perseverance. Can all of the moms be like, amen, I need lots of that? For real, right? Dads too, but man, when your neighbors, when your coworkers, when your spouse, whoever it is, when they sin against you, when they hurt you, It requires perseverance. Nothing has taught me perseverance quite like running. I'll be honest, running is hard and painful, and when I don't run for a while and then I start again, I'm like, this is terrible. Who would ever want to do this? But the reality is that every time I I actually set my attention to train, a few years ago, I trained for a half marathon, and, and I got to the place where I was running four to five times a week, and I got to the place where my body craved it, and I had to do it over and over. How does that happen? It happens with perseverance. How do we grow in such a way to become a people that really live out the love of God? <laughs> You're going to have to practice it. It takes perseverance. It, it, it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy, but it certainly can be done. One of the reasons we so often struggle with getting offended is because we don't want to be patient and we don't want to persevere. Right? I don't like to be patient. I want it here. I want it now. I want you to get it. I want you to change right now. In fact, I kind of demand it often but I want you to think back in your own life. The people who've made the biggest impact on me are the people who were the most patient with me. The people who persevered. When when I was in high school, I remember a time, my family was quite close um, at the time with with our pastor. We hung out with their family often, and I remember a time in high school where I, I spread a rumor about my pastor's daughter I know, hard to believe. But, but I, I did. And I lied about it. I lied about it for a long time. And then it finally came out, and I had to acknowledge it in front of my family and her family, sitting around our dinner table one night. Great times, don't recommend it. Okay. Ten out of town, ten out of ten, don't recommend. I do remember sitting there, embarrassed, broken going, great, what's going to happen? And my pastor was not an intimidating guy, but just in the nature of, you know, who he was, it's scary. And he came up to me as he was leaving, and he said this, Aaron, I'd like to meet with you. Just like that. Didn't say anything else. And I'm like, "Uh." (laughs) And so I had to go in. A few days later, and go and meet with him, I sat down across the desk from him, and he simply said to me, he said, "Aaron, I think God's doing something in your life right now, and I just love to pour into your life." I had just hurt his baby girl. hurt his baby girl. And yet he was patient. And persevered with me. I I don't know if anybody has honestly in one instance made a bigger impact on my life than that right there. For somebody to say, I have every reason to be mad at you and to just thrash you right now. And everybody would be behind me. And yet he was patient. And he persevered. God had every reason to just wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And yet he didn't. He said, still, you will be like the sands of the seashore. You will be my people. Wow. I wonder what would happen if we would become a people who persevered with others. Because the reality is when we don't persevere, not only does it hurt the other person, but it hurts us. I mean, think about it. When we don't persevere, when I'm trying to get strong and and be a a decent runner, and I don't get up and go out and do it, my muscles just atrophy, right? And when we don't persevere, we actually don't go forward, we go back. We don't grow by protecting ourselves. We don't grow by insulating ourselves and trying to make sure, no, 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 you can't ever hurt me. No, it's the opposite. We grow. We grow when we persevere. I love what Romans chapter 5 has to say to us. It says this, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character produces hope. And all of us would probably, I mean, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'd probably be like, yeah, yeah, I agree with this, but then you don't like to be offended. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you can make a choice. You can choose to persevere and realize that maybe God's doing something through that person in your life and opening up a door. Don't get offended. Go with love. Go with love. Again, like I said, we don't grow by protecting ourselves. We get fragile. Instead, we grow through perseverance. Now, let me take you back to the text show you what else happens. So all of this is going on. Hosea marries Gomer. Gomer is unfaithful, but they have three kids together. Chapter 2 is all about how Gomer goes out and goes back to her old profession and goes back to her old ways. And God tells Hosea to continue to pursue her. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, I'd be like, nah, bro, I'm out. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, can you... Imagine how personal I mean, I, I realize in a room like this, maybe you can't imagine. Imagine how personal this is. Chapter three says this to us in verse one. "Then the Lord said to me, "Go show your love to your wife again." And by the way, she is currently living with another lover. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. This is a reference to Baal worship taking place in the land. They keep going to false gods. Man, what does he do? even though she has said, you're my enemy, I want nothing to do with you, I won't be faithful, I won't uphold my vows, all of that, all the way down the line, God says, go and pursue her so you can be reconciled with her. Oh, by the way, I'm doing the same, God's saying, I'm doing the same thing with the nation of Israel, and He does the same thing with me. He offers the same thing to you. If you want to know why we are so, like, serious about Jesus around here, it's because of this. It's because we are a bunch of broken, messed up people. There are not perfect people here, my friends. We are, you know, you may be new and you may look at us as religious. I am telling you, we are broken people that God has pursued. And God has said, I know everything about you and I still love you. (laughs) Wow. Really? Yeah. So what does it require? What do we do? How do we demonstrate love? Well, when people act like your enemy, love requires reconciliation. When someone acts like your enemy, we don't get to just cut them out of our lives and say, talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. Some of you are 90s kids and you know what I'm talking about, okay? That was, that was, that was me. We don't get to do that. that that's not... That's not what we're called to. We're called to reconciliation. Let me give you a definition of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the willful act of pursuing and restoring a relationship that has been hurt or broken or strained by demonstrating love despite the hurt. It's saying, I'm going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming because I love you. By the way, that's not easy. Recently, I read a story about a man named Daryl Davis. Let me show you a picture. Does anybody recognize this guy? No? Doesn't surprise me. Darryl Davis is actually a Grammy Award winning musician, known for jazz music, known for um, just being an incredible pianist, right? And, and vocalist. One day when Daryl was playing in a a venue, a guy came up to him. I think he was maybe playing in some small town in, in a bar or something like that. And a guy came up to him after he was playing and sat down and started talking to him. And as he was talking to him, he said to him that he had never heard a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. He thought that Jerry Lee Lewis came up with that style of music when really it has its roots in African American soul music. So he had this conversation with him, and eventually he admitted to him that this was the first time he had ever sat down across the table from a black man. He'd never had a conversation, never had a face-to-face conversation with a person a different ethnicity and color. And then he explained why. He said, because I'm actually a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. The conversation shocked Daryl. And eventually, Daryl got to the place where he could ask him the question that had been on his mind. And the question was this, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? How can you want to be rid of me when you've never even talked to me? And Daryl dedicated the next three years to a project where he started building relationships and documenting every conversation. And he met every clans person he could meet, asked if he could buy them a meal and sit down with them and start to talk with them. And he felt that if he could have a conversation with them, that that, that, that proximity would breed empathy and maybe, just maybe, a heart might change. And over the course of the next three years, Daryl Davis saw 200 clansmen turn in their robes. He pursued reconciliation. He hadn't even done anything wrong. He just existed. And yet, rather than getting offended, rather than... You know, go, blowing off steam and getting angry and yelling and ranting or posting on Facebook or writing who knows what online. What did he do? He decided to go and have a conversation. And here's the thing he talked about the hurt and he talked about the pain and he talked about what it felt like to be hated by someone who had never known him. See, here's the reality and something that you need to know reconciliation doesn't ignore the hurt. It doesn't. It doesn't ignore the reality of the hurt, but it refuses to be controlled by it. You and I do not need to be controlled by the hurt and the things that have happened to us. We need to be controlled by the love of God, and that's what moves us. Third, when people act like your enemy, love requires redemption. Love requires redemption. Let me define redemption for you. Redemption is the act of delivering from bondage by paying a needed price. See, when, when someone uh, commits a crime or, or does something against us, there's a price attached to it. Well, I want you to see what Hosea went and did because Gomer had, had done all sorts of things that were wrong. And now she was stuck. She was in a bad place. She ends up in a slave market where she is about to be sold for who knows what. What does Hosea do? It's really easy to look at that and go, I'd just be like, take her away. Chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us what Hosea did. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. Do you understand this? He bought his wife back. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer of lethic and a lethic of barley. Verse 3 says this. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. He went and paid the price. And here's the reality. You may need to go and pay the price to fix a relationship with someone. What, What does it mean to pay the price? You may have to die to your pride. You may have to you may have to die to your ego. You may have to be willing to acknowledge that, that I have to let this hurt go. That, that costs something, doesn't it? Because it's nice to hold on to the hurt because then we can hold it over the person and be like, come on, you big jerk. Look at what you did. You know? Look at what you did, you little jerk. From home alone. Okay? But we are called to be a people who pay the price, even if we're not the ones who did the damage. That's what God has done for us. I'm confident that someone has hurt you. I'm confident that it's painful. And yet, here's what I would tell you. Love requires redemption. Romans chapter 5 tells us this. In verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was not lovely and Christ died for me. And I'm sure you are a wonderful person, but I'm going to tell you, the reality is we are not lovely. And Christ, when you weren't lovely, died for you. Now, I want to wrap us up today by sharing with you how this story of Hosea reminds me of another incredible story of love and redemption. A story found in John chapter 8. I'll show it to you really, really quickly. It's a powerful story. John chapter 8, starting verse 2, says this, At dawn, he, this is talking about Jesus, He appeared again in the temple courts. He's in Jerusalem. And all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And in the middle of that, um, some people who were trying to trip Jesus up brought a woman to him. And here's what happened. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. The text tells us that she was caught in the very act. Where's the guy? Good question. But in that culture, it didn't matter. There's a lot of things that don't get answered in this story, but Jesus' response is incredible. See, the law required that Jesus say, well, if she's guilty, stone her. Pick up a bunch of stones and stone her. Stone her to death. Culture says somebody does something wrong, write about it online. Tell everybody else, get angry, get offended, do your deal. You're right, they were wrong. Stone them. That's not how Jesus responds. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, verse 5, it commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And I love... The more I place myself into situations like this, and I mean not in the situation of Jesus, but placing myself in, in the spot of being like this woman, the more I love and understand how big Jesus' response are. In verse 6, it says this, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. It just... Let's just play in the dirt for a little bit. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And I can't help but imagine that just little by little, probably starting with the older ones who understood what was really going on, You heard a little bit of this. A cascade of stones. People saying it's time to drop the stones. Why? Why? Why would we be an unoffendable people? Well, because we are an offensive people who have offended a great God, and rather than stoning us, God came with love. Why would we choose love? Why would we choose radical love? The kind of love that's like Hosea and Gomer. Why would we do that? Why would we be a people like that? Because that's the kind of love that we have received. The only one who could pick up the stones and stone me, traded places with me. And allowed himself to be crucified. A text ends like this. Again, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard, they began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I love the response. She says, no one, sir. And then Jesus says this, then neither do I condemn you? Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't just overlook it, but he certainly doesn't throw stones. What if we were a people who went with love, radical love, Love that brought perseverance when we've been hurt. Love that pursued reconciliation when when, when we've been mistreated. Love that actually went after redemption and was willing to pay the price because the relationship matters and the person matters and God is up to something maybe bigger than you and I can see. What if we decided to drop the stones and go with love? So here's what I'm going to leave you with, with, two questions. Question number one. Who do you need to love right now? Are they in your home, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your church? Who is it? I'm pretty sure somebody's in your head. Might want to write it down. Question number two, what action does love require? Is it perseverance? Do you need to reconcile? Do you need to redeem? Not, not in the sense of saving them, but paying the price. Is that what love requires for you to be unoffendable? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he loves me this way, even though I don't deserve it. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who would be different Throughout this series, I've been hearing stories of, uh, of how you've been changing lives. And God, I pray that you would continue to do that. I pray, God, that, that you would change our responses. That rather than going after people and attacking, we would say, no, it's time for us to come with love. That radical love that you loved Israel with and the radical love that you loved, that you told Hosea to love Gomer with, wow, God, please help me to love like that. Pray in Jesus' name.